You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. It's at the very beginning of the Bible that God says, It is not good for man to be alone. Uh, These are hard words to hear right after the holidays when we've been so compressed together as family and friends. Uh, I don't know if you saw the uh, Daily's news article, UW's newspaper, about a a 35-year-old man in Sicily who uh, just had it up to here with his family and on New Year's Eve went to the local police station to see if they would arrest him uh, so that he could sleep in the cell for the night. And they said, I'm so sorry, but you haven't actually committed a crime. Uh, This didn't stop him. He went down the street to a tobacco shop and uh, pilfered some candy, And at which point the police did arrive and arrest him, and he spent the night in jail. (laughs) I'm not sure always that it is not good for man to be alone. And here I I just, at the beginning of this message, want to indulge you uh, in a little autobiography, and I suppose it's full disclosure, and say that... um, I believe that that's true, but I am very much among the unconverted. I I, I present myself to you as a recovering uh, introvert. And as we study together this series on community over the next six weeks, I will be listening uh, with you alongside taking notes uh, because this is an area of growth in my own life. I know there are a lot of wonderful things about uh, George Hinman. You know, I, I love to laugh. And uh, I love beauty in the outdoors. I'm, I think, a gifted teacher and leader. But when it comes to relationships, I'm something of a spaz. And, um, and I will tell you, you know, I'm an introvert, and there's no crime there. I am shy. Um, but I'm a little embarrassed to have to say that I'm also um, a egocentric. And uh, you may hear me from time to time talk about the Georgiocentric universe, and uh, that you are all uh, in, by the way. But, um, <clears throat> but I have a way of twisting life so that it's all about uh, me, and that makes relationship a bit of a of a challenge. So, um, I'm just laying it out there for you. I'm so I, I, I introduce myself to you this morning in the way that an alcoholic does at an AA meeting. I say, "Hi, my name is George. I'm an introvert." Okay. <clears throat> so our text this morning is about uh, community. You'll see as we look at the study of community, we're going to kind of move through the, the biblical narrative. Uh, and we're going to start right here at the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 2. It is most centrally a story about the beauty of marital union. But as it is also the story of the first two human beings on the planet, it takes on a larger sense. It takes on uh, metaphorical status, symbolizing all of human community. And when Jesus comes, he will show us that the marriage relationship is symbolic of the relationship that God has with his broader church community. And so Paul would say, you don't have to be married. In fact, for many of us, it's better not to be married. And the marriage community is not sufficient to engage us in the fullness of community that God has for us in the church. So we look at this most broadly. um, And let's open now, if you would, to Genesis chapter 2. It's on page 2 in the Bible. And I would invite you to stand, if you're able, and read this text aloud uh, together with me. 
And the text is Genesis 2, verses 18, down to the end of the chapter, verse 25. And after we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully, we're reading God's holy word. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air and to every animal of the field. But for the man, there was not found a helper as his partner. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And then he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called Wu-man. For out of man, this one was taken. Therefore, a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what we just read never will. Please be seated. I invite you to keep this text open as you follow along, you'll see that God makes this core assertion and that it is followed by a solution and finally an invitation. God's assertion we find right off the bat in verse 18a, the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. This he asserts and does so emphatically. The Hebrew is an emphatic construction, puts his foot down and says, it's not good for man to be alone. Not only emphatically, but also universally. He's not saying it's not good for this man, Adam, to be alone. He's not saying it's good, not good for men to be alone, as though we could, any of us conceive a world without women. He's saying... It's not good for humankind. This is the word Adam in Hebrew, from which Adam comes. The name, it's the same word. Uh, And it means humankind, not maleness in particular, but humanity in both genders. And it's not good for us uh, to be alone. It's a global assertion. Now, others have said the same thing. And uh, thankfully, at the end of the 20th century and early 21st century, we are uh, gaining a better appreciation for our own culture and as well the risks of living so. Uh, Listen to uh, just a kind of a a long list of voices here. Uh, I begin with Robert Bella, a Berkeley sociologist who says that individualism is the default mode of American culture. Princeton's Michael Walzer claims that Americans are perhaps the most individualistic society in the world, in human history. George Gallup Jr., after a career polling and statistical work, has concluded that Americans are among the loneliest people in the world. And in his book, uh, Harvard uh, 
public policy professor Robert Putnam argues, and the title says it all, Bowling Alone, that uh, Americans have been gradually disconnecting ourselves from family, friends, and social institutions with a corresponding drop in what uh, he calls social capital. That's the value in your life that you derive from the network of relationships that you live your life in. Putnam shows that uh, attendance at club meetings over the last 25 years has dropped 58%. Over the same period, family dinners have dropped 43%. Same period, having friends over dropped 35%. See the cultural changes. And then he says, we are seeing measurable impacts in our marriages, in our careers, in educational outcomes, in happiness, even in our physiological health. Psychologist Martin Seligman argues that more of us are feeling down because modern society encourages a belief in personal control and autonomy more than a commitment to duty and common enterprise. Just last fall, in a Scientific American Mind, a study was released and a journal article, October issue, um, and we read this, quote, belonging to social groups and networks appears to be an important predictor of health. Just as important as diet and exercise. Whoa. This point is demonstrated, they write, by a study of 655 stroke patients reported in 2005. Patients who were socially isolated were nearly twice as likely to have another stroke within the next five years, as were those with meaningful social relationships. Listen to this. There is now compelling evidence that the health risk of social isolation is compared to the risk of smoking, high blood pressure, and obesity, even after controlling for other variables known to affect health. Another researcher says, joining and participating in one group cuts in half your odds of dying next year. So we send out the sign-ups? Finally, <laughs> those of us who have enjoyed uh, Paul Allen's PBS special this week, a six-hour thing, what a great series it was. If you just watch, and it's still online, by the way, just go all the way to the end and hear the concluding words of Harvard professor Daniel Gilbert. This is what you'll hear. The secret to happiness was never very secret. We are connected to each other. We belong to each other. We were made for each other. Life is a journey through time. Happiness is what happens when we make the journey together. It is not good to be alone. Now, we're hearing this more and more in our culture, but I think it's somewhat surprising that we hear it from God. I mean, imagine yourself in Adam's place. There you are, in the first day of your life, you awaken from a sleep that I imagine must be like the most refreshing sleep you have ever uh, had, right? Because you're coming to life, full of energy and vitality. You open your eyes, things come into view, and you see, I am in a garden, a beautiful garden. I've got the number one campsite. And <laughs> you open your ears, and the most beautiful sound that you hear is the sound of a voice calling your name. It's your creator. It sounds to you like Beethoven's Ninth Symphony in D minor, the ode to joy. 
And, and of all the beautiful things you see in the wilderness of this garden, the most wonderful is the glory associated with this voice as it moves through the space. It's like the, the most spectacular of all sunrises. And, and you're tempted, if you're Adam, to fall on your knees and raise your hands and, and just worship. It's the most unadulterated devotional quiet time you've ever had in your life. And you say, God, it's just you and me. This is beautiful. I mean, I'm, I'm here before you, all that I am, and you're here before me, all that you are. Now speak to me, Lord, because I'm listening. And what does he say? Uh-oh. Uh-oh. What do you mean, Lord? He says, uh-oh. I see it's just you. You're all alone. You know it's not good for you to be alone. And you think, what? What do you mean? I'm alone. And I'm reminded, you know, of uh, the Lone Ranger. He comes through the valley and these uh, enemy Apaches come up on either side. And Lone Ranger turns to Tonto and he says, Tonto, we're surrounded by Indians. And Tonto says, what do you mean we, pale face? (laughs) We're not alone. It's you and me. It's the most beautiful together the world has ever seen. You're my co-pilot. You know, it's me and God. And God says... Yeah, but you're alone. How could I be alone with the one who says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I am with you always. I am God, Emmanuel, God with you. Yes, I'm with you, Adam. But you are still alone. That's the assertion that God makes, verse 18a. And he follows it up with a, uh, with a, a solution. Verse 18b. God never makes a diagnosis when he doesn't hand us the cure in the very next next sentence. I mean, all along the story has been saying it's good, it's good, it's good. Chapter 1 ends the great poetic prologue of creation with the words, it is very good. And then immediately there's the first denunciation of scripture, it is not good. But God, right on the heels of that, says, I will make. You see, the grace of God comes right in. I will make. Him a helper as his partner, he says. And immediately God goes about the work of bringing someone into Adam's life unexpectedly who will open to him more of life, who will help him understand who he is and what he is created for. I will make him a partner. And and so the Lord bends over and scratches in the dirt a little bit more. You remember that Adam... Uh, was made from the ground. And this in Hebrew is Admah. Same consonants in Hebrew. It's, the, it's a related word. Adam from the Admah. And, and yet, what God had done for Adam was he had breathed into him the very breath of God and brought him to life in a special way. Now, without the breath, God goes and he scratches in the dirt and he brings out these creatures one by one. They come kind of in a parade before Adam. And, and, and if you were here last week, you heard Earl Palmer, what a wonderful sermon. He, he, he talked about this as the beginning of, of science, and he's absolutely right. There's this kind of uh, discovery that's going on here, a wonder in, in, in a taxonomy of all of the natural order that is, as this parade goes by Adam. But there's something else happening. It's not only the beginning of science. It's also the beginning of language and communication and relationship. Because we get the impression as each animal comes before Adam, 
he's got this kind of visceral response. The text says he calls to it. Bird. And that becomes the name of the thing. Banana slug. You know? <laughs> but all the while, what he's looking for is what he has been promised. A partner. Someone who will bring an end to his aloneness. And he looks and he says, Aardvark. Hell, orangutan. You know, I, I kind of think that at the end of the day, Adam probably looks back on this as his dating history, you know, and he's probably not real proud of it. I don't imagine he tells Eve a lot about it, but um, but he's looking for relationship. He's hunting for it. God has promised it. And as these animals occupy this garden, the garden grows, it fills it fills with relationship, but, but nothing adequate, nothing suitable for the one in whom the breath of God has been blown. And, and, and those of us who are in the audience of Genesis know why that is. Because we've heard, read to us already, Genesis chapter 1, the prologue. Let's flip back for a second and look at, at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. As the climax of God's creative work here in this poetic construction, humanity is created, but something different is happening here. You see, all the way through Genesis chapter 1, God is speaking, but he's speaking into existence the creation with the third person pronoun, let there be, and there was. But now when he comes to create human beings, something different happens. He says, let us. Verse 26, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness. See, the key word there is us. Who are these people? To whom is God talking exactly? Who, who, who is this we? Well, we don't exactly know for sure. There's very little revelation given. We do see in verse 2 of chapter 1 that the, uh, the Spirit, it says the, the Spirit or the wind or the breath of God is winging over the waters of, of chaos. And we will read later in John's prologue, which is in, written in conscious imitation of Genesis 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Through Him all things were created. Nothing was created that was not created through Him. So the Son of God is present, Spirit, Son, and Father. We come to understand that God, when He speaks of a we, is speaking within Himself. One nature, one God in three persons. But we don't know that now. All we know here in this text is that God is speaking to someone. Be very clear, the writer wants us to know, God is not creating because he's lonely and needs a buddy. God is not lonely. God is not alone. God exists in a happy, free, committed, loving circle of relationship. That's who God is and has been from all eternity and ever will be. A perfect small group. And so he says, let us create humankind in our image. Now, notice here, when we get down to verse 27, notice the, 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 uh, the shift from singularity to plurality. Verse 27, so God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Now, just go ahead and cross that out because there's a footnote there. It should say him. In the image of God, he created him. That is, the image of God is singular, but male and female, he created them needs to be divided into two genders. Why? 
Because we are to be like he is an us. Created for a relationship. Manifestly incomplete as individuals. As a man would be without a woman. As a woman would be without a man. And, and this is, again, not just about the necessity of marriage. Because it is no necessity, we read as Bible goes on to say, but it's about the necessity of partnership. You and I are created for relationship. Karl Barth would say, look at this passage, and he'd say, if you were to be able to take the relationship out of the Godhead, God would cease to be God. And in the same way, if you and I were able to take the relationship out of humanity, humanity would cease to be humanity. We experience life most joyfully when we experience God in a circle of relationships. Dallas Willard, the UCLA philosopher, writes, Personalities united can contain more of God and sustain the force of his greater presence better than scattered individuals. This is God's solution to aloneness. It's partnership. It's a circle of relationship. Finally, we come to, uh, to God's invitation. <clears throat> God has solved the problem of aloneness with relationship. But we need to be invited into that circle. And in verse 25, we see a description of it, which is truly inviting. Verse 25 of chapter 2. I'm going back now. to the <clears throat> This whole text that we read together culminates in this wonderful description. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Wow. Naked and unashamed. That is at the same time a beautiful and a tragic description, that phrase. Naked and unashamed. Why do I say that? Well, it's beautiful. Because here we are led to believe that the possibility of, of community offers us the possibility that we could disclose who we are, that we could discover who we are, as we relate to somebody else, and, and that we could trust and be honest enough about who we really are in our core being to be absolutely free to be naked with someone, and they can respond with acceptance and appreciation and value and even celebration over the uniqueness of who we are. Wow, naked and unashamed. It's a kind of a community though, that you and I have never experienced and never will experience until Jesus Christ returns. And that's the tragic aspect. Notice that the only way this writer can describe the beauty of this community, this circle of relationship, is with a contrast, with a negation, not ashamed. It's as if to say, you and I really have never experienced this. We can't even conceive of it. Because any time you and I have ever thought about entering into a relationship, to take in the risk to reveal who we really are to someone, we have been disappointed. Our relationships are broken and failed and have led to hostility and injustice. So, so the only way you could conceive of this kind of reality is to know nakedness without shame. Trust me, it's beautiful, he says. Well, this is indeed an invitation, if it were only possible. Since I've been a bit autobiographical, I will continue in that vein and tell you that I came to faith in Jesus Christ in a garden, uh, Stanislaus National Forest in California. I was 14 years old. I was on a 
Christian backpacking trip, a week-long banana lake, I remember. And it was the first period in my life that I can recall the grace of Jesus Christ making sense to me. And it was a wonderful discovery. God in that garden, caring about me, celebrating who I was as his creature, and giving me life in the grace of Jesus Christ. Well, it was kind of an isolated experience because it was a wilderness experience, and I was with those people only for a week, and I came back into civilization. I did join a church, but I did not get involved with any Christian friends. I had been told that I should, but I, I just didn't. As I told you, I'm shy, I'm introverted, and it seemed unnatural to me. And God would whisper in my ear, in, in the way that only God does, that inaudible voice to the soul that says, <clears throat> George, I love being in this garden together with you. We have wonderful times together, don't we? Yes, we do. But, George, it's not good for you to be alone. Well, I, I, I don't want to... I don't want to welcome anybody else into this. It's a good thing for me. He says, but George, I have more of myself that I want to share with you. And you can't hold it alone. And there's more of you that I want to show you. And you can't discover it alone. Well, I resisted this for many years. It went on through high school and into college. And when I was in college, I kept hearing that voice again. My spiritual world was sort of unraveling. I felt very hollow. I knew that God was a part of my life, but I wasn't listening to him. He kept saying, George, can we welcome some people into this garden? And he would bring people across my path. Wonderful people, actually, for whom I had great respect. And I would say, no, no, do not let anyone know that I'm a Christian. It's my private little secret garden. It started to get overgrown with weeds and bramble. And he said, George, what are you afraid of? And I said, well, there are only two kinds of Christians. There are those who do not walk the talk, and there are those who do. And frankly, I'm ashamed to be counted among any of them. Why? Well, on the one hand, I'm afraid that those who walk the talk are just too good for me, and those who do not are not good enough for me. And I'm ashamed. And God said to me, George, how about if we do this together? How about if you, for your part, just open the door and let these people in your life? And how about you trust me with the shame part? And let me to handle that for you and for them whenever it's necessary. And so I said, uncle. And I did get involved with a small group. And the garden grew rich and beautiful for me. Let me read a letter to you that I received this week from one of our members, one of you, by the name of Tom. Actually, I had permission to read this letter, and when I received it, the guy said, Go ahead and use our real names. We have nothing to hide. And so I read this letter with the actual names in it. Tom writes, I am elated that UPC has chosen to put forth its best energies and efforts to promote and facilitate small groups. Small groups provide such a rich opportunity for the discovery of the God that dwells in each of us and the God that dwells in community. The church can be at its best in small groups. Allow me to share a transformational small group experience. Although this incident took place many years ago, it is still emblazoned in my memory as though the occurrence was last week. For many years, I was in a small group with my dear friend, Neil. Metamorphosis was normative for our group, 
over our many years together as other people joined and departed and the focus of our time together moved from Bible study to an emphasis on sharing and praying and back again. Through it all, Neil and I stayed committed and seldom missed a week together. At one point in our small group journey, we extended an invitation to Joe, a man I had come to know through mutual friends. Joe had expressed interest in pursuing the Christian faith he had known in his youth, and Joe accepted our invitation and showed his interest and commitment with his regular attendance. We enjoyed each other's company. We had fun together, explored the Bible most weeks, but always found time each week to share and pray. My assessment was we were doing just fine. Then, after a few months with Joe, it all changed. One typical small group evening, after having just finished a short discussion on a Christian book we were all reading, I tried to transition us to a time of sharing. Joe stopped the proceedings with a declaration. Guys, I can't take it anymore. You don't know the real me. You don't know my past and my present. I'm not the person you might think me to be. With that, Joe shared like he had never shared before. He articulated his shortcomings, his failures, his wounds and scars, and his own assessment of himself. He concluded his time of disclosure with the statement, you probably won't want me in the group anymore. For most of the time Joe was sharing, I was formulating in my head how I was going to respond. I'll talk about God's grace, God's forgiveness, redemption through him. I'll recite the perfect scripture for this situation. I was certain I had the right answer for Joe. There was a dramatic pause after Joe concluded, and I took a breath to begin the sharing of my well-formulated response. I was preempted. Neil jumped in with a, Joe, thanks for sharing. That was powerful. Here's my story. And out it came. Neil's failures and shortcomings and scars. I heard Neil share things I had never heard before. At first, I was bothered. I had the right answer for Joe. I knew what was best for this situation. I quickly recovered from my self-pity and then became bothered that Neil had never shared these things with me. <laughs> then a lightning bolt hit. Although slow to comprehend, I finally recognized the workings of the Holy Spirit. Joe's heart-wrenching, you won't want me with you anymore, transparency gave Neil permission to share in the same manner. Tears came to my eyes. I was so honored to be trusted with their worst. Then the second lightning bolt. It was my turn. <laughs> I was so good at the facade. I was so practiced at putting my best foot forward and manipulating impressions. I was so good at control. It was still my turn. However, I was almost overwhelmed, even joyous at the sense of freedom I felt. I didn't feel forced. I didn't feel driven by guilt or sense that I needed to even the playing field. I truly felt completely comfortable to share my worst. Neil had already established that there was no rejection here. Out it came, all my junk. For the first time, I stepped fully into the light. That night changed us. Each of us discovered the freedom gained in full disclosure. Each of us realized the burden-lifting relief of transparency before each other and before God. In his grip, 
Tom. Austin Ferrer, the uh, Oxford fellow and theologian, writes this. We are all members of one another, and one of us is Jesus Christ. You ask yourself what happened to the shame in that group. There was one member who took care of it all. Jesus Christ is for us both the model and the means of community. If Jesus Christ needs to be in a small group, then so do I. And on the night of his betrayal, the darkest night of his life, he himself is in a garden. And it's in that garden as he wrestles with his uncertainty and doubt and fears that he calls to his side Peter, James, and John. Gentlemen, would you pray for me as I wrestle through the night? He's the model of community. He's also the means of community. For the Apostle Paul would tell us that Jesus is the second Adam. He comes to bring the new creation. And when he is risen, he meets his disciples in a garden where the tomb lies. Mary the Magdalene first and then the others later in the day in an upper room. And he, interestingly enough, breathes on that circle of relationship, physically breathes on them. The breath of the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit, he says. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. You see, Jesus is in your garden and Jesus takes your shame. Will you hear his invitation? For those of you who are already in a circle of faithful friends, Perhaps will you hear his invitation to be more honest, to trust him with your shame? For those of you who are not yet in a circle, will you hear his invitation to share your garden with others? Let's pray about that. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it gives us joy when you open up your heart and show us that at the center of your being is love, eternal loving relationship. And it terrifies and also delights us to know that we are made to experience just such a circle. So Lord, we pray for us, ourselves, we pray that you would give us the faith in Jesus Christ to trust him with grace. To know that there is in every one of our circles an alien righteousness. A righteousness that does not come from the group, that comes from outside the group. From our Savior Jesus Christ who meets us there. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.